Hello and welcome to the TTAC podcast. This is the Truth About Cars podcast. My name is Tim Healy. I am the managing editor for the Truth About Cars. I am joined today by Corey Lewis, Chris Tong, and Robbie DeGraff. Corey and Chris write for the for the Truth About Cars. Chris does car reviews for us as well as some other stuff. And Corey is our sort of our resident uh, rare used car, classic car guru. And Robbie DeGraff is an analyst, an automotive analyst with Auto Pacific. And we are going to pick his brain today about the state of the industry. Gentlemen, how are you doing? Doing well here, definitely. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me on. Things are great. Thanks, Tim. Corey, how about you? Doing pretty well, staying inside because it's hot. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay, Robbie, we're going to start with you. Uh, we're going to talk about the state of the automotive industry and uh, just kind of give us uh, a quick overview of what you're seeing right now as an analyst. Yeah, absolutely. So, as we know, the pandemic has definitely shaken things up quite a bit. Uh, while we're slowly, I would say, improving a tiny bit, things are still pretty rough. Uh, inventories remain really, really tight. The supply chain is continuing to grip everything uh, even harder. Uh, average transaction prices are getting closer and closer to $50,000, I believe. Uh, the last month's average transaction price was about $47,000, which is just an absurd amount of money if you're trying to find like an affordable car and you're a little bit tight on budget. Uh, and then we're definitely seeing like, I think especially more recently with, you know, some of these like hotter vehicles coming out, uh, dealerships just attaching humongous markups on some of these vehicles that are in in theory supposed to be affordable and attainable, but five to six, seven, ten thousand dollars more than what they're actually supposed to be selling for. So it's definitely a pretty wild time to be buying a car right now if that's what you're doing. Yes, it is. Uh, Chris, Corey, do you have any thoughts on that? I'm honestly overwhelmed with the the additional dealer markups we're seeing, the average transaction prices. Yeah, it is impossible to find and yeah, impossible is certainly hyperbole, but damn near impossible to find an affordable car these days. Um it's disappointing. I, I can't imagine I'm, I'm into my forties. So I'm thankfully I'm well into a career or two. Uh, I'm not uh, struggling like some folks that are, you know, starting their first job out of college or whatever. Uh, I, I can't imagine what it's like for someone making roughly minimum wage or not much more to be buying a, a vehicle they can rely on these days. Well, you just bought a car last year. Was it that insane when you bought your Jeep, or has it gotten even worse since? Uh, we bought our Jeep, and we paid very close to MSRP within – I mean, it wasn't that far off from MSRP, and it was a low- to mid-range Jeep Wrangler uh, mm-hmm. Unlimited. Um, so I want to say 40-ish, uh, which is by far the most we've ever paid for a vehicle. Um, yeah, prior to that, it was like 21 for a minivan mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Uh, yes, I actually just bought another vehicle too, but that was a lot cheaper and hasn't really made its debut on the roads that much because it needs a little bit of work. Um, if, if anybody's interested, it's a uh, a four hundred dollar BMW. So and I've got about, yeah, I've got about a thousand dollars worth of parts in a uh, online shopping uh, of stuff that I just I know I'm going to need. So I'm, I'm sure we're, uh, Corey's going to give me some lectures on buying old uh, old German cars. <laughs> Yeah, how about that, Corey? Did Chris make a smart decision? Uh, depending on what it is, uh, or maybe even not, uh, probably not for uh, $400. Yeah. 
if it's uh i'd say if it runs you're doing pretty well it sort of runs um and no it's not a smart decision i guarantee you that but it's all about content it's all about uh you know getting likes for the gram <laughs> yeah it's this this market right now is is rough um you know i would i would consider buying a new car right now but i think as long as you really don't need one i think it's probably not a good idea uh cory have you been looking for anything new or you're kind of keeping with what you have um, I, I, my initial plan, um, around 2019, when I sold my, um, golf wagon because of all its problems was to get something that was a convertible. Um, right as I started looking was when the prices started going just ridiculous, you know, for, for even used stuff that's 10 years old. Um, and right now a car that should be 16, 17 grand is probably 22, 24 somewhere in there. Um, so just holding off right now and waiting for everything to, to come back down. Yeah. Robbie, have you seen any indication that there might be some return to what we might consider normalcy either by the end of 2022 or as we move into 2023 next year? So, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because with vehicles becoming more and more expensive and, you know, as we were chatting about with dealer markups, it's really, pushing a lot of people out of the new vehicle market and either holding on to their vehicles a lot longer or into the used market. But as I'm sure we've all seen, like prices on used cars are just as bonkers. I think they're starting to come down a little bit depending on what you're looking at and the market that you're in. But I think that we're still calling for, you know, I would say probably Q4 of 2022 at the very earliest to start seeing things recover. I mean, it's really just going to depend on like how, how inflation plays out and how the rest of the year plays out. But, um, you know, I would agree. I think that if you don't need a new vehicle right now, and obviously there are usage cases where you obviously do need one, but if you don't need a new vehicle right now, I would say hold on to your car a little bit longer if you can wait it out. Uh, if you do need something new, I would definitely say like go into the used market, but just be super careful because there are dealers that are taking cars kind of like what Corey was saying, where, you know, a car that's a couple years old, that may be 15 grand, uh, dealer's going to buy that at auction and charge a premium on it just because they're going to see people coming into the used market now thinking it's more affordable. And in some cases it is, but I know when I was shopping with my younger brother, maybe a month or two ago, we were looking at some used Subarus, uh, just because he had a, a, a Buick Park Avenue, I'm sorry, not a Buick Park Avenue, a Buick Saber that finally hit the dust after so many years. Uh, and it was a real challenge to even just try and find a, a, a seven, eight, nine year old Subaru Forester or like an Outback that had been marked up like crazy. So I definitely think that the remainder of 2022 is going to be pretty tough for new and used car shoppers. And hopefully we'll see a little bit more light come at the end of the tunnel, like as 2023 begins. Yeah. And we actually had a piece on the site yesterday from one of our freelancers showing that used cars pricing is so ridiculous that even getting a used car isn't going to save you much money, especially on popular models. He used the Kia Telluride as an example because it's mm-hmm. been a popular car since it launched, but he also referenced the Mazda, I believe CX-30 and the, and the uh, Honda Civic. So there are, you know, a lot of popular vehicles out there that um, even as used cars aren't going to necessarily save you a lot of money. Uh, it's because things are just insane right now. If you can't get a new car, you're going to get a used car. So demand is just kind of high. And then obviously supply chain shortages and the chip shortage and all that. So it's it's a crazy time right now. I'm kind of glad that I'm not looking for a car. Um, 
Unfortunately, my father kind of is. He's looking for some, something kind of used, and even mm -hmm. used cars are kind of insane right now. He has an older F-150. It's kind of on its way out. So he's looking for something new. My mom actually did buy a new car last year, but she bought in January, uh, I think of 21. So uh, so she's already had it for a year and a half, so time flies. But she got, a, got ahead of all this craziness. And I think she paid right around MSRP, maybe a little bit under for a for a Jeep Cherokee, and it's not a, not a top trim, it's a, a Latitude Lux trim, I think. So, you know, she uh, she got, she timed it just right. A little few more months later, we've been, we've been pretty rough. Yeah, one of my best friends, uh, he lives in Washington, D.C. Him and his wife just had their first uh, child a couple weeks ago, and they were looking for something a little bit bigger than the current Hyundai Sonata that they had, and uh, he'd been looking around for Kia Telluride's and Honda Palisades, and it was just a, a mess out there trying to find one. Everyone that he was finding had been marked up six, seven, eight grand. And thankfully, within a couple of days of uh, their daughter Sasha coming into the world, they were able to find a Palisade at a dealership at MSRP and take it home right at MSRP, which he's thrilled that even happened. But, you know, he was smart. He was literally monitoring their inventory and, and, keeping an eye on it every morning with his morning coffee. And then he finally found the right deal. So if you can, if you can match that luck, then go for it. But I would definitely wait. If you do want to go into the used market, dealerships are pretty tricky right now, but I don't know about Tim, Corey, or Chris, if you guys have seen this, but I've seen a couple just uh, people in my neighborhood selling cars at the end of their driveways that are, actually pretty good deals and i feel like that's kind of the secret spot right now if you do want to buy a used car is to find your neighbor that's selling like a you know like an older honda pilot that's a pretty steal of a deal like i feel like that's where i would go if i were in the market for a used car right now is just searching around craigslist or seeing if anyone down the street from me is selling something that's not marked up like mad by a deal yeah you got someone who needs to sell in a hurry you know maybe they upgrade their car mm -hmm. maybe they had a maybe they had a baby they didn't expect to have or something like that or a baby on the way, I should say, and you know, something like that, or an unexpected life change, or like, you know what, I just want to get rid of this car. It's I don't need to worry about making a profit on it. Now, the problem is with, with what Robbie said is where I live, you know, you just don't see that because I'm, I'm in a big city. No one has driveways to park their car. <laughs> but uh, in the suburbs, I can definitely see that. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, the problem with the private market is the concern about reliability, repairs, repair history. And yeah, it, it's a two-way street, certainly. You could find that neighbor that you know they're they're they've held on the card for a while they've got great service records things like that the bmw i just bought my wife and i were wandering around a garage sale and he was putting other stuff out in his in his uh driveway and he had a a sign on the bmw in the driveway i actually sold it. i actually once sold it a uh a cord at a garage sale so you know it comes back around but, uh, when i was uh or sat for a couple of years through the pandemic. He worked from home and didn't need it. And he was uh, willing to deal. That's when I was a child, my, well, maybe not a child, maybe teenager, early teens, my dad and uh, my mom bought uh, a 64 Impala SS basically at a garage sale. With oh the my. intent of restoring it. Never got around to it. Sold it a few years later. Car barely ran. It was not particularly special. It didn't have the 409. It had the 327, which is a much more common engine. Right. Um, it had been... The previous owner had like put some more modern touches. I think there might have been a tack and a tape player in it, so it was not exactly you know going to be uh, Meekum auctions or bring a trailer worthy. But it's still just kind of a bummer we didn't really do much with that car because it would have been a lot of fun to drive that car around. 
uh, a 64 is an icon, man. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Although this is before all the rap videos made it really famous. I think this is right around the really? same time the Skilo video. It might have been a couple of years before. Well, I mean, really, the 64 has been a, the icon of South Central since 65, 66. And I... I read a great article about that but uh it i, I want to say 91 92 was when uh, snoop and dre that, were really talking that about could be. I, yeah. I was a little bit late to that and then um because i was just a dorky white suburban kid and then the other thing is <laughs> the other thing is you know i may dismiss the whole south central things i grew up uh, halfway across the country so i probably wasn't aware of that so maybe i didn't realize at the time exactly how iconic it was until you're the later. closest of any of us to south central my Chicago friend. Geographically speaking, yes, but still yes. pretty far away. Still a good <laughs> thousand miles or twelve hundred miles, whatever it is. On that same, on the subject of used car, or new car and used car pricing, what do you guys think of? As we close the segment out in just a few minutes, what do you guys think of the the average dealer markup that's been an issue? I know Robbie just touched on it a few minutes ago. That has been an issue with buying new cars, and you know, I always go back and forth. It, on the one hand, it's manufacturer suggested retail price, right? It's a suggestion. Dealers can do what they want, capitalistically speaking. Uh, and even though I'm not exactly as Mr. Free Market, I definitely understand that. But at the same time, it often seems like when dealers do that, it hurts the perception of the brand overall. Uh, and I also feel like, you know, it kind of just makes the market insane. So I don't know where you guys come in on that. Should there be regulation? Should there be pressure from the automakers to make sure dealers don't do it? Is it kind of productive for dealers to do it? I've always kind of just sort of wondered, you know, what the, what the right tack on that uh, topic is. Well, uh, additional deal. Yeah, it is. It's free market. We've got, it's one of the very few places in our country where the price is not set from the manufacturer or set by a retailer where you're not necessarily going to pay what's on the shelf. You go into Home Depot, you go into Target, you're not going to be able to negotiate <laughs> price of a sheet of plywood or a uh, some bed sheets or anything like that. But why do we do that at a car dealership? Mm-hmm. It, it seems a little odd. Uh, it is the, the last vestige of something resembling a true free market economy in our country. Um, that said, you're right. It, it, does reflect poorly on the manufacturer because the general consumer does not necessarily realize that when they go down to the Toyota dealership or the Ford dealership, whatever, that is not Ford. They're not walking into a Ford building. Exactly. They're walking into Joe's Ford and whatever. And it's Mm -hmm. Joe that they're dealing with. They're not dealing with Ford. Right. And I've always kind of, you know, wondered how many, how often consumers forget about that. And there is a long history as to why dealers exist separate from the factory. We don't have time to get into that today. And it's actually pretty fascinating. But um, to me, it's just, you know, it it just, it's just shocking to see a $50,000 Bronco going for, I don't know, 80,000. I'm just making this number off the top of my head. I'm not saying I actually saw this, but going for $80,000 or whatever, it's crazy to me. I, I understand that part of that's just the way the market is. And when the market cools off, it'll change, but it's still just nuts to me. I think it's, I think on a, just to say one thing before we move on to the next segment, I think it really is important to look at the types of vehicles and the intention of the vehicle when it comes to dealer markups. For example, uh, a 
five to six, seven thousand dollar markup on a brand new Mercedes EQS is probably in reality not going to be that big of a deal for your typical like EQS buyer. But when you look at a vehicle like the Ford Maverick, for example, uh, that is designed from the get-go to be an affordable, attainable product for the everyday consumer, especially younger consumers that, you know, they want something that's not going to break the bank. But when you see like a eight to $10,000 markup on a, on a, $21,000 truck, which I've seen here in Milwaukee, unfortunately, at some big box Ford dealerships, it ruins the point of the vehicle. And I think that automakers should be doing more. And I know Ford is definitely trying to, but I think that automakers do need to have a little bit of a heavier hand in being like, okay, this is the point of this vehicle. This is the intention of like why the price is set for it. Don't mark it up to this great extent. Cause it just, it, I mean, I hate to be frank, but it pisses me off when you see a, a vehicle that is marketed to be affordable, designed to be, you know, a, a, a budget-friendly vehicle, and the dealers are just slaughtering people at the dealership when they come in to try and buy one, and it's like, oh, you have to pay an extra six, seven, eight, nine thousand dollars on it. It just ruins the point of the vehicle, and I don't think that's right to the consumer. Is there a yeah. solution though? I mean, short of uh, the automaker either some, somehow enforcing an MSRP or maybe doing some sort of reverse holdback sort of thing. You sell it at MSRP and you'll get better than invoice price or whatever it is at, at the back end. I don't, I, I don't know how a dealer's going to be um, mm-hmm. forced to sell at something closer to MSRP. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what the solution for that is either. And again, it's... I, it's I think it's going to be really interesting to keep an eye on Ford and see what they do. Cause I feel like of all the automakers right now, they're the ones that are being somewhat the most aggressive of like, do not mark up our vehicles. Do not attach an ADM onto it, especially with the new lightning coming out. I mean, they've right. been very monitoring that. So I, yeah, Chris, I don't know exactly what the solution is, but I'm going to keep brainstorming one. Cause I don't think it's right. If you can think of one, I'm sure Ford will, or Stellantis or whoever will hire you away from our Pacific. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, two quick points before we close the segment. I think I think Robbie makes a fair point that ADM is different depending on the vehicle. You know, an ADM on a Honda Civic seems kind of cruel, whereas an ADM on a Corvette seems sort of you can kind of rationalize that and it seems reasonable. Mm-hmm. And I would also say to uh, the point of deal- what OEMs can do with dealers. Um, if someone said this, I missed it. I apologize, but OEMs do have some pushback. They can say, "Hey, if you're, you know, you know, you're not going to get, if you want to put ADMs on on your Broncos, then we're not going to give you as many Broncos, or we're not going to give you as many Mustang Mach ones, or whatever." They can, they can do stuff like that. There's a few different levers the OEMs can pull. How effective those levers are, I don't know, but they can do um, a few things to sort of push back a little bit here and there. So I just wanted to kind of close on that note. And then we're going to come back on the other side of a quick break, quick timeout. We're going to talk about uh, a couple of things just to sort of close out the day, close out, close out uh, our podcast here. We're going to talk about the state of the EV market as EVs become more and more of a thing over the past year and a half or so. Uh, the, the, the amount of EVs on the market has just sort of increased and there are more to come. And then on top of that, we will finish off by talking about small trucks that segment is poised for growth and we will talk about that in just a few minutes again this is the t-tac podcast and we will be right back
All right, we're back on the TTAC podcast talking with Robbie DeGraff, an analyst from Auto Pacific, Chris Tun, a TTAC contributor, and Corey Lewis, also a TTAC contributor. And my name is Tim Healy. I'm the managing editor uh, for the website. And just to kind of go back to the beginning of this podcast and, and just sort of give you a little bit more background about ourselves, Robbie's based in Milwaukee, I am based in Chicago. Corey is in Cincinnati and Chris is in Columbus, Ohio. So we have the Midwest well represented and we we're going to move on from our previous segment when we were when we were talking about the state of the new car market. And now we're going to move on into the state of the EV market, which is obviously a small part of the new car market, but ever growing uh, over the past year and a half, especially have seen some more uh, entrance in that segment kind of started last year with the introduction of the Mach-E Volkswagen's ID4 hit. Now we have the Lightning is on the road, the Ford Lightning pickup. I've seen a couple of Rivians in the road, their little, uh, their pickup truck as well. I shouldn't say little truck. It's definitely full size. <laughs> uh, the Hummer EV is out there now. There's a few others hanging around. So let's uh, get, get Robbie to kick it off by kind of telling us what he is seeing about the EV market as an analyst. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really, I feel like t- summer of 2022 is definitely kind of that kickstart of we're starting to see a lot more EVs from automakers, mainstream and premium, uh, come out in all sorts of different segments. We have EV sedans now. We have a couple EV pickup trucks in the works, uh, a couple actual like traditional crossovers. You know, EVs are starting to become way more available to different types of people that want them. Uh, not to mention, even though there are pricier EVs out there, and I feel like there's a lot of, you know, kind of commotion in the media and with politicians saying that, oh, every every EV is a $50,000 EV. But the reality is, is, you know, I'm sure we all know that's not true. There are a lot of pretty affordable EVs in that, you know, $30,000, $40,000 price range before the tax credit kicks in. Uh, So there are a lot of really great options out there for people if you are in the place to buy an EV. We actually here at Auto Pacific do a bi-monthly fuel price impact study. So we send out a survey nationwide to vehicle owners to gauge their thoughts on like fuel economy, uh, prices at the pump, various geopolitical issues with car shopping. And in our most recent study, we actually found out that even as gas prices are soaring and soaring and soaring, consumers of or consumers and current vehicle owners of SUVs and crossovers are much more likely to stay within a crossover and an SUV, but switch to something that's electrified. So for example, uh, in our most recent study, 27% of current SUV and crossover owners uh, would consider switching to a fully electric SUV or crossover. And thankfully there's a lot of really good ones out there from like the Kia EV6 uh, we've got a couple from Mercedes coming out. It's a, it's a lot coming down the pipeline. Robbie, real quick before we before we get hear from the others on this, what percentage of the market share is EVs now? Last I checked, it was somewhere between two and four percent, but I haven't looked in a while. What what are the latest numbers? Do you know? I believe last I saw we're hovering around four percent, and that's expected to go up to I think ten percent within the next year or two. Um, I know that we are predicting that by 2027, 42% of all SUVs and crossovers are going to have some type of electrification, including EVs. So we're definitely going to start seeing a lot more of these vehicles sold with electrified powertrains within the next several years. Chris, Corey, what are your thoughts on the EV market? Have you guys paid close attention to it? And uh, are you ready for our EV future? Um, I, 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 
paying a little bit of attention. Um, I've, I read uh, Chris's review the other day about the Nissan Leaf um, and how difficult it is to get things charged um, in the Midwest in general. Um, I think that's going to cause people to want to hang on to their, um, you know, gasoline powered cars just in, in the middle of the country in general. Um, I, I think another thing that will hold people back, even if they want to stay in the crossover um, segment, I not, that I know of, there are not any three-row EV crossovers yet. Um, I think that'll be I, I a little turn point. This will have and, something with rear-facing seats in the back, but that might be it. I believe there's some hybrids that are three rows, but not any full EVs that I'm aware of. Not counting the Tesla with the rear-facing seats. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people, even if they don't truly need a third row, they will not consider something unless it has one. Um, mm -hmm. And so that'll get more people into them, in addition to uh, a, a more thorough charging network throughout the country. The charging network thing is is definitely true, and I've had that issue where I live. Um, I've written about it for TTAC. I've talked about it, I think, on previous episodes of the podcast. For those who don't know, I'm in a high rise and it's an older building. Our garage does not have any EV chargers. It's it's either a 110 or 220 year old year old school plug-in three prong outlet. Um, so it's very slow charging overnight. I've had some vehicles that I was unable to charge at a previous job. I had a Nissan Leaf and our garage attendant moved it the night. I was supposed to drive 30 miles each way the next day to a party and the garage attendant moved it the night before and left me with like 29 miles of range. Oh, long, no. story, long story short, I didn't make it to the party. Oh. Um, it's a very long story that I can recount some other time, but we don't have time for it right now. <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> a couple of years ago, I had a Jaguar I-Pace, and the I-Pace was having a hard time charging my building. There's a Whole Foods nearby with level two, I believe level twos, and the uh, I-Pace just would not talk to them. It would not charge. So I took it to the Jaguar dealer, and I said, is there something wrong with this? And they charged just fine at the dealer. But it wouldn't charge at Walgreens or Whole Foods. I, try, I tried, I think, three or four different level twos. And I went back to the same Whole Foods, and then one of the two chargers did work later. Why it worked the second time, I'll never know. So I think we need – it's a long way of saying that we need better charging infrastructure because every time I get an EV to test, I always have to have that calculation in my head, you know. I have to think about where am I going to charge it? Will I charge at Whole Foods? Will I charge my building? Sometimes I don't put enough miles on to worry about it. I've had a couple EVs where the range was higher, and I just didn't put enough miles on to worry about it. Uh, my lady friend's place does have a couple level twos, so I will charge there if I'm at her place. But, you know, it's it's something to think about, especially in urban environments. Um, but even in the suburbs, you know, not or, or rural areas, too. You just don't have a lot of access to chargers. So... I think, you know, Corey raised a good point with that, that once, once we get better charging, that will, I think, help EVs grow a lot. I also think the three-row thing is a really good point, too, because there just aren't that many that I'm aware of anyway, full EVs with three rows of seating. And I think there are a lot of people who are convinced, as Corey said, that they need three rows, whether they uh, actually do or not. I mean, imagine buying a gas car 10 years ago, and you could only take it to BP, you can't go to Shell. That's kind of what you're dealing with, with with that Jaguar. You're mm -hmm. uh, you couldn't go to the the charging station at Whole Foods because it wouldn't talk to your car. You, you know, it doesn't have the right shape uh, gas nozzle. That's kind of where we are right now. Well, that's the thing. It actually had the right shape one. It should have well, been able to talk to the car. It just didn't. I'm, I'm being facetious about you yeah, know, yeah. 
10 years ago with gas cars or 20 or 50 years ago, whatever it was, we, we standardized how fuel is delivered and what fuel is delivered uh, initially 110 years ago. And then, and interestingly enough, first, apparently the first gas station was right here in Columbus, Ohio, uh, first actual service station with fuel. Um, I just read that somewhere. Maybe Ohio's good for something after all. Exactly. Um, and then when we standardized, when we moved away from uh, unleaded or moved away from leaded fuels, gradually starting in the early seventies, uh, you could still get leaded fuel for quite a while until uh, it was phased out. But we're kind of at that point where you don't know if your shell or BP is going to work for your particular vehicle. And that is, besides the range anxiety, is the, you know, where are you going to get it? Is it going to work? Mm-hmm. Um, when you show up, I've seen social media posts from other people that are driving cross-country with uh, EVs, and they can't get things to work, or they're working at an incredibly slow charging rate. It's supposed to charge at 350 kilowatts, and it's only charging at 90 kilowatts or what have you. So it extends your time. Um, I am... I almost had a situation today, which is one of those, or this this week, where it's one of those hypothetical, what would you do if you had an EV, that I could not have been able to do what I was about to do. Uh, my daughter was returning from a 10-day school trip in Europe and got stranded in Newark, New Jersey on Wednesday. And we didn't so know when. Lovely, we could... lovely place to be stranded. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> All the $33 breakfast at that airport. $33 for eggs and bacon. $20 beers or whatever it might be. Uh, she's 16. She shouldn't be drinking any beers, although apparently <laughs> Germany, apparently in Germany, she fell in love with a non-alcoholic uh, Hefeweizen. So uh, that's, that's another story. Um, I, if Had I had to, we were very close to driving to New York Wednesday night to And then Thursday, her flight that was supposed to leave in the afternoon kept getting delayed because some for some reason the Columbus airport was closed, or at least the tower was closed again for the second time in two weeks. That's about 550 miles. Actually, they they transferred her to LaGuardia, so she we have to drive to, to Queens and back and pick her up. And I couldn't have done that on EV. There is no EV that I know of that will do 550 miles and then charge in the 10 minutes that we would have had to turn around and then go back to Cleveland to pick up my other kid from camp, summer camp today. So, And the charging thing is so frustrating because you know, I used to be kind of not anti-EV, but I'm just old enough to be like, I'm old school V8 rip roller muscle. And I still love, you know, a great sounding V8 Mustang Camaro or whatever. But for 99% of the market, that doesn't really matter. And for right. your commuter car, an EV is just fine. And there's a lot of advantages to EVs. The the instant torque in most of them, the way they accelerate, even the even the heavier ones like the Ford Lightning, which I've had a chance to drive now a little bit. Uh, the acceleration is just great, having torque available right away. I'm getting used to the one pedal driving, using your brakes less and uh, less wear on brake pads. And the other idea is it's silent. You know, obviously it's a lot, a lot quieter experience. And for mo- for most vehicles, that's pretty good. You know, mm-hmm. most vehicles you don't want to hear the engine. Most vehicles aren't Mustangs and Camaros. So, you know, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of positives to the EV uh, shift, but we're not going to get there until we can charge the dang thing. Right. There's a and there's a I think there's a really interesting thing that uh, you know Chris brought up about like you know are, is the station going to actually work and I think that that's an opportunity to to educate people on 
I would almost say like public charging etiquette per se. Um, and the reason for saying this is, so we have, and Tim, you've been in Milwaukee, you know Milwaukee pretty well, but uh, we are pretty far behind the times in terms of public charging infrastructure. There aren't many charging stations that are level two. There's only, gosh, I don't know, probably less than 10 level three charging stations in a city of a million people in the, the greater area. But our closest DC fast charging station and EVgo station that's uh, maybe five minutes from my apartment that I use when I charge. A couple days ago, I was at the grocery store where the charging station is. I drove past it and I looked on the screen and I saw that it was not working. There's like a, a wrench up there. It says, please call service. Uh, so I was in a hurry, kept driving. Three days later, I go back to that grocery store and the same screen is up and I'm like, okay, well, you know, maybe this hasn't been reported yet. So I, even though I didn't have an EV at the time, I called up EVgo and reported that the station had not been working. And there were the uh, representative on the phone said, Oh yeah, this is the first we'd heard of it. So that was the first time that someone had called up to report that one of the very few charging stations was broken, you know? And it's like, it's kind of a thing of like, you know, if not you, who kind of a thing. And it's, it brings up the issue of like, are these stations going to be able to, to self-report if there's an issue with that? Will there be other people that like take that step to report that a charging station isn't working? I mean, that station sat mm-hmm. three days without anyone calling to say that it had been broken. And that, you know, puts a huge damper on people that rely on public charging for things. So there's, there's a lot of questions that, you know, need to be answered and problems that need to be solved among EV buyers and just people that aren't EV shoppers. Like, you know, don't park in mm-hmm. front of a charging station if you don't have an EV. Uh, in Wisconsin, I know that I've seen a lot of public charging stations that in the wintertime, when the businesses contracted like landscaping company comes and plows, they will plow the snow right up into the charging station and you can't access it. Uh, you know, there's, there's all these hurdles that we have to get over for to, in order to get more people in the EVs and have them be acceptable. Yep, there are lots of hurdles. And with that, speaking of hurdles, we're going to hurdle on to, pardon the <laughs> poorly punned segue, but I do like traffic and bad puns from time to time. We're going to move on into the next segment and talk about another area of the automotive industry that's ripe for growth, and is the true small truck segment. We'll be right back to talk Ford Maverick, Hyundai Santa Cruz, and what the other automakers can do to sort of compete with that. And we're back in the TTAC podcast talking about the state of the automotive industry, the state of the electric vehicle segment of the automotive industry, and now small trucks. My name is Tim Healy. I'm the managing editor for The Truth About Cars, along here with Robbie DeGraff, an analyst for Auto Pacific, Corey Lewis, a contributor to TTAC, and Chris Tun, another contributor to TTAC. And we are going to now talk about the Ford Maverick, Hyundai Santa Cruz, and why that segment is just ripe for growth. And I'll start there by just pointing out that what is what I what I call the true small truck segment, since those trucks are actually small, <laughs> is is uh, an interesting place for the market. Because when I was younger, full size trucks are pretty small, right? And they've grown in size, and now the mid size trucks are about the same size as the old full size trucks, which that's created kind of a market opening. Because you know, growing up, we had the Ford Ranger, which was smaller than the current Ranger, and we had 
uh, I forget that there was the Dodge, there was not the Dodge Dakota, or maybe it was the Dakota, but there was also small Datsun trucks and Nissan trucks. And, uh, Dodge had the, there was a Ram 50, the Dodge had a Ram 50 through the 80s, which was a Mitsubishi Mighty Max. Yes, I remember that now. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so we had all those, we had all those trucks going <laughs> up and then they all sort of disappeared. And then they, and last year, Hyundai came out with the Santa Cruz, which is sort of El Camino-ish, Chevy El Camino-ish, where it's kind of, it's a truck, it's got a truck bed, but it's not really meant to go off-road, not serious off-roading. I mean, it'll take you to the trailhead or campsite. Uh, it's, it's probably more for outdoor people, outdoorsy people who like to surf, mountain bike, that sort of thing. Um, and you have the Ford Maverick, which is a little more truck-like. It's, it looks more like a conventional truck, has a conventional truck bed. Probably a little bit more capable off-road, although it still can't do that much. It's it's mostly an on-road truck, but it's that that the Maverick is kind of meant to do truck things, but with a smaller bed and a smaller footprint than a full-size truck or a mid-size truck. A little more uh, better fit for the city and for the suburbs. And so, I'm thinking, you know, there has to be opportunity here for for Ram to jump back in with a small truck or uh, Kia to do something based on the Santa Cruz, because obviously. Kia and Hyundai are corporate siblings and often share platforms and sort of thing. There might be opportunity for, I don't even know who else could, could jump on in. Volkswagen's had small trucks overseas for a long time that they've never, they've never brought here. I believe Mercedes had the X-Class, which I think is the same size. It might be a little bit bigger. Well, um, the Mercedes X-Class is actually a Nissan, um, is a Nissan, uh, similar to the Frontier, whatever. So it's, but whatever. it's a little bit bigger, so I was a little mm-hmm. bit wrong on that one. The, but yeah, the Navara. My point is there, there is... Some, yeah, the Navarra thing, sorry. Thank you, thank you. So there is some uh, opportunity here, and and Robbie, Chris, Corey, what do you think about this this industry, this segment of the market? Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's fairly promising. I think that pretty much every manufacturer could go into it. Um, it the, the Santa Cruz and the Maverick have proved that you do not need a rear drive or truck platform to build a small truck. Just use a car platform or whichever crossover you want. Um, I can see Subaru doing something like that because they had the uh, Baja a while ago. Um, people would love that, I and that fits the their customer base really well. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think that one important thing to for the, the manufacturers who want to sell that kind of car in North America to keep in mind is that they should not take one from another market and bring it here because I can see Fiat trying to bring over the, um, I think it's called the Ram 100 or something like that mm-hmm. from Mexico mm-hmm. I think it's Ram um, or like some Brazilian market truck. Yeah. They, um, that those just would not work here. And I can see Volkswagen doing something like that too. Like, Oh, we sell this in South America. It'll probably work. No, you need to do a different one just for the North American market that has a larger engine is wider more features and stuff like that. You calling me fat, Corey? <laughs> <laughs> there has to be there has to be uh, a Ram Dakota coming, right? There just has to be. Yeah, Ram can't afford to. I mean, this is this is such a fiery hot segment right now that really checks a lot of the boxes. You know, good fuel economy with the Maverick having a standard hybrid, the the practicality of a pickup truck bed that the vehicle the the truck itself is comfortable and easy to drive like a crossover. You can park it on the street without much pain. You park it in your garage or in a parking structure. These, this new crop of 
actual compact pickup trucks is, I mean, it's nailing it. If you look at the sales numbers for the Maverick and the Santa Cruz, it, it, that's the proof. Uh, other automakers like, you know, Ram, they definitely need to get on it. I think that Toyota could see a humongous success if they did kind of like a sub Tacoma compact truck, you know, imagine like a Toyota Corolla cross with like a little bed on the back of it with a hybrid powertrain. Now is the time to jump in on the segment. And I definitely think we're going to see Ram come out with one. Uh, same with Nissan too. Yeah. Nissan seems like an obvious choice. Um, although Nissan often <laughs> recently has seemed kind of behind the times, but it seems like if they kind of get their stuff together, they'd be an obvious choice for that segment. Mm-hmm. Chris, you're the resident Nissan expert. Any thought on that? <laughs> I I would love to see a rogue based truck, a rogue sport. Um, the Kashkai, for example, which is uh, the U.S. market rogue sport, is incredibly popular. If I'm not mistaken, it is one of the top five selling vehicles in the UK, for example. Um, it is. I don't know. It's a great little platform. It's not the greatest driving thing in the world, but for 95% of most people's driving, it would be fine. Uh, I think what every one of these automakers needs, though, is to go back to our previous segment. We need to look at electrification. And Ford has absolutely knocked it out of the park with the hybrid version of the the Maverick. Um, I've talked to people that don't care about cars. I have a lot of family and friends that their eyes glaze over when (laughs) I start talking about cars. And they are asking me constantly about the Maverick Hybrid. Mm -hmm. I had a, the Maverick Hybrid, uh, one time, uh, I was driving it sometime this winter, standing outside a restaurant waiting to get in. It was a long wait. And I had three different people drive by, loop the restaurant stop after realizing what it was, what I was standing outside next to and asking me questions about the the Maverick hybrid. And there is an awareness of the fuel economy advantage of electrification. Uh, People didn't want to buy a Prius 20 years ago because it looked weird. Mm -hmm. The latest Maverick looks right. It looks like a truck. It's small, but it's efficient and it may, it, again, if we can get rid of the additional dealer markup we talked about in the first segment, it's affordable for a lot of people. If we can get the pricing back down to where it needs to be, where it should be at the MSRP, I've got a daughter who's 16 years old. That's what she wants. When she graduates college, she wants a, a Maverick hybrid. You make a good point about the Maverick looking right. And that's something I've tried to articulate in the first drive I did and and, and the upcoming reviews, the two that I've tested, the Maverick just looks like a truck, but it's just, it, it does. It's, it's kind of plainly styled. It's, it's just a box and a bed. And that's, I think, where it's going to have a little bit of appeal over the Santa Cruz. It's probably a little more utility friendly. You could probably do a few more truck type mm-hmm. things, but it looks like a truck. And to a lot of people, they, they want to have a truck. It looks, you know, macho and uh, utilitarian and all that kind of stuff. So I think for automakers entering the segment, my advice would be probably to try and, for the most part, make their trucks look like trucks. Uh, there might be some exception here and there. Then there may be room for another Santa Cruz type vehicle that looks like a Subaru Baja or the Odell Caminos. 
But for the most part, I think part of the Maverick success is that it looks like a truck, but it drives like a car. And it's and it's easy to park in the city. And I think that's going to be the key. I think what happened is over the years, Americans just wanted more and more space. Mm-hmm. And automakers accommodated that. And that's fine. It's, you know, that's what they're supposed to do, make products that people want to buy. But at the same time, they abandoned the niche. They abandoned the segment of the small truck. So as the F-150 grew and as the Ranger grew and as the Silverado grew and then and Chevy brought the, the Colorado and Canyon in to replace the old S-10, they kind of abandoned that segment thinking, oh, no one wants to buy a small truck. Well, I don't, think, I don't think that's true. I think there were a lot of people who wanted smaller trucks and were disappointed that they had to go to a mid-sized truck. They didn't want to spend that kind of money. They didn't want to buy something that big. And I think there's, um, and this is obviously anecdotal. I haven't done market research on this. And Robbie can speak to that if he has any data from from Auto Pacific Island. He's willing to share with us. But just anecdotally, I feel like there's been a lot of people clamoring over, over the past 10, 15, 20 years. Like, hey, where's my small truck? Where's the old S10, the old Ranger? I need to use it. I need. I want a truck that I can use for truck-like things on occasion. But it's car-like enough and fuel-efficient enough and easy enough to park in the city that I, I don't feel like I'm sacrificing much when I'm driving it around with the bed, with the bed uh, unladen. And I think, you know, that was the appeal of those smaller trucks a long time ago. And automakers just kind of forgot about it. And I think they rediscovered that, hey, there are people who use a truck every so often, just enough to justify having a truck, but they also want to have it be more car-like for the times they're not using it that way. And so they're not looking to Home Depot to rent a truck every so often when they need to haul mulch or whatever. Um, so I'm starting to kind of repeat myself, but basically there was an opening here uh, that automakers finally saw that, hey, it was a chance to kind of go back and reconnect with this old segment that used to be really popular and maybe really popular again. And, and Robbie, I need to ask you then if there is data, if you have seen data showing that consumers were asking for more smaller trucks, more Maverick sized trucks, more Santa Cruz sized trucks. There's definitely been a demand among shoppers, especially younger shoppers. I am 32 and uh, I'm going to echo what Chris was saying too. Uh, I have had, two tests of the Maverick as well as the Santa Cruz for a week. And I, I love both of them. I'm a, a little more partial to the Santa Cruz because I like the styling and the retractable bed and uh, tonneau cover in the back. But for a long time, you know, if you wanted to upgrade from upgrade segment wise from like a sedan into something a little bit bigger, you were kind of forced into a crossover of some type, but there were people that were like, I need more space, but I don't want to spend the money and have the stigma of driving a full-size Ford F-150 or a Silverado. And yeah, that, that white space was just kind of absent for a long time. And now we have a solution that fits and it works really, really well. And I think that's, I think one thing that's important to, to keep in mind too, for, you know, product planners that are listening to this podcast is that it is okay to call the Maverick and the Santa Cruz a truck. It is a truck. It has a truck bed. Um, I know I have talked to some people in the industry, various automaker names that say like, oh, don't call it a truck or don't call it a pickup truck. But in reality, it is a pickup truck. And it is okay to have a cheap, smaller pickup truck. It's 100% okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And not everybody, I mean, realistically, not every American shopper needs a full-size pickup truck. You know, the majority of the pickup trucks I see driving around here in Wisconsin, whether it be in my neighborhood here in Milwaukee or at state parks, you know, like 
not everybody is using these pickup trucks for what they're for. And, you know, I feel like you're probably going to see younger shoppers that are buying these smaller compact pickup trucks that are leading a little bit more like more adventurous lifestyles. And they're going to be using these trucks a lot more probably than people that are buying a fully loaded F-150 Platinum. You know, you're going to, you're going to take, you're not going to be afraid to take your Ranger to the dump and like get rid of things or go to Home Depot and load up on some stuff or, you know, easily go tailgating. Like, I think it's, I think there's a completely different audience of these people that are buying these smaller trucks like the Santa Cruz and the Maverick than like your F-150 and your Ram 1500 buyers. And I think, and I think like, you know, going back to Subaru, I think Subaru has a, a humongous opportunity right now to jump in on it. I, I totally agree. I think the use case is huge here. Um, you know, there are people who buy an F-150 or a Silverado because it looks cool, right? They mm-hmm. like the big truck and they, you know, they like the higher ride height, whatever. But most people are buying them because they think they need a truck. Yep. And they use it for truck type things once or twice a year, right? Yep. Whereas the Maverick or the Santa Cruz, you could do the same thing and use it for truck type things once or twice a year, but you're going to pay less in MSRP. Well, mm-hmm. not, well, obviously, dealer Hopefully. market. <laughs> you're going to get better fuel economy. You're going to have fewer. You're going to make fewer sacrifices in terms of practicality and parking in the city, in terms of ride comfort, in terms of just. And that's where I think there's, you know, just to kind of use a personal example, I like to tailgate at concerts and baseball games, football games, or at least I used to before COVID. It hasn't really done that much during the pandemic for obvious reasons. But, you know, so I've always liked the Honda Ridgeline because the Ridgeline is kind of more car-like and has some features that you can use to tailgate the in-bed trunk and all that sort of stuff. kind of makes it a, a tailgate-friendly vehicle. Well, long story short, over the past few years, before my dad bought his F-150, we didn't have a truck in the family for a little while. And we would tailgate uh, opening day for the Chicago White Sox. You know, he, sometimes he'd either borrow a friend's truck or rent a truck because, hey, you know, you need, we need to have a grill back here and all this stuff and a regular car or an SUV is just not going to work. But now with the Maverick or the Santa Cruz, you could say, well, you know what? I tailgate eight Bears games. Sorry, Robbie, but Bears, not Packers. No, uh, it's okay. We're still friends. <laughs> <laughs> I tailgate – oh, sorry, Chris, too. I forgot you're a Packers fan. I tailgate eight Bears games a year. Why do I need an F-150? but I might need the Maverick to do this and it's cheaper and it'll cost you less in gas. You can drive it around the open bed the rest of the time. And it's just not a huge sacrifice. And I think, I think that's what the opportunity really is uh, for this, for this segment. And you can have some cool looking stuff too. Like you said, you like the Santa Cruz cause it looks better. I like the Maverick better cause the Maverick's more useful in my opinion. It can do more things all around, mm-hmm. but the Santa Cruz is good looking. I like the styling. I think the Subaru Baja was cool. Uh, you could, Subaru could easily do another one of those. Something looks pretty cool. So I think there's a lot of opportunity here. The Santa Cruz, if I recall, uh, they, like Robbie was mentioning, they don't want to call it a truck. And they are focused primarily on outdoor uh, enthusiasts that they want to throw something in the bed that's going to get, you know, they don't get dirty, whether it's, you know, you know, snowshoes or whatever it might be and you know I'm talking to Robbie in Wisconsin <laughs> <laughs> or uh, if they've got a dog that got muddy while they're out in the trails they can throw it in well, you know, throw a dog in the, tra- in the bed but um, you can keep clean things in the clean area dirty things in the dirty area and enjoy it as an adventure vehicle on the weekends as they like um, <clears throat> that is certainly a yeah that is definitely what the, the old Subaru Baja was um, and it actually makes me think of 
uh, uh, some of you guys know my another vehicle near and dear to my heart is a GMT 360 platform with the Chevy Failblazer, excuse me, Trailblazer that's in my driveway. Um, the uh, if you recall the GMC Envoy XUV with the retractable roof over the uh, the cargo area. You think about all of those enthusiasts going to antique stores, bringing home a different grandfather clock every weekend. That is a market that Hyundai has really been able to go for now. You've got grandfather clock enthusiasts. They can throw things in the bed without having to worry about an SUV. Corey, what about you? How would you use a Maverick or Santa Cruz in your neck of the woods along the Ohio River there? I mean, I think it it would definitely be useful for um, the purposes that you all have highlighted of the occasional times you go to Home Depot and buy something that is kind of dirty and you wouldn't want to put it in your carpeted trunk area. Um, So I can definitely see how they appeal so well um, to people who don't want a regular size truck, full size truck. Um, I was also just, just pondering that I think Honda should make one too and they could call it the element. Ooh, that's a great idea. Yes, absolutely. Bring back the element as a truck. I like it. Corey, that's genius. All right, guys, that's about it for time. So I thank you guys for your time again. And once again, for those of, for those of you listening, this is the TTAC podcast, The Truth About Cars. You can find us at TTAC.com or all one word spelled out, thetruthaboutcars.com. Again, my name is Tim Healy. I'm the managing editor for The Truth About Cars. I am here along with Chris Tun, one of our contributors, and Corey Lewis, another one of our contributors. And then on top of that, we have guesting with us today, analyst Robbie DeGraff from Auto Pacific. So again, thank you for your time for listening. Thank you for listening. Check us out at ttech.com and have a great day. No, 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 no. Uh, actually, I was driving um, the best Buick LeSabre ever to be built in the state of Tennessee. I've got oh. a v, uh, VW Passat. Oh, um, nice. That's a comfy yeah. car. Yeah. Uh, so invisible. Dark, mm-hmm. beautiful dark green paint. Um, thankfully, I didn't drive the other vehicle I've got this week, another BMW. I've got a X4M competition in... I can't remember what the name of the color is, but basically picture a yellow highlighter. Oh, God. 500-something horsepower coupe SUV abomination that is insane. 15 miles to the gallon, too. Thank God I didn't have to drive that. Can I ask what the price was on it? 80-something. You're, oh, my God. Or an X4. Uh, I was going to guess 100. Let me see here. Let me pull up a Monromi. They call it uh, Sao Paulo Yellow. I'm going to guess and say it's 84200 86145. Oh my god. Nope. 70, 73 base plus 7 grand for the comp- package. 22.50 for the executive pa- package which is heated steering wheel, heated seats, parking assistant, heads up display, wireless charging, gesture control which I have given fingers definitely to it. Um <la
Uh, the M drivers package, but I don't know what that means, is $2,500.